Morning Sermon Audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. I'm going to guess that most of you, if not all of you, are a little bit like me, that we don't like to be told that we're wrong. Anyone have the same sentiment? You know, you already know the way you want to go and where, how to get there, and then you don't really appreciate when someone tells you there's another way you can go, and it's actually better or shorter. Kind of annoying, isn't it? Hard to appreciate. Or if you're arguing about some historical fact, and then someone decides to pull out their phone and look it up, and sure enough, you're wrong. Don't you just hate when that happens? Or you just, had a <clears throat> or you just had a fight or a discussion with your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and how many of you are glad to be the, one, the first one to say that you're sorry? Anyone? <laughs> I was trying to think of personal examples, but I couldn't come up with any. <laughs> any that I wanted to share with you, that is. Um, but, uh, you know, what's even more difficult is when you're absolutely certain about which is the best way. You're absolutely certain about your history, or you really, really know that you were the one in the right, then it's harder to admit that you were wrong. My wife is laughing at me right now. <laughs> I won't mention her by name. Um, <laughs> no, but truly, wouldn't we all rather hear that we're doing okay, that we were right about something, that however it is that we're doing it, that's the way to do it? I mean, think about your last performance review, or when your coaches tell you how you're swinging or how you're playing. You know, or your spouse tells you you're doing something really, really well. Well, take that same desire to be right and never be wrong into the moral realm, and then you have a hard time hearing from someone who wants to let you know that what you're doing is actually morally wrong. It's hard sometimes to hear that our actions amount to stealing or breaking some law or that some of our sexual desires and activities are actually sinful and wrong, or that our words or the language that we're using is reprehensible, or the things that we like to do are wicked and evil. And that's why most people, even today, will not listen to the call to repent from the way that they currently live, because those ways are evil, and instead turn towards God's ways because His ways are good. Paul even instructed Timothy faithfully to preach the word. Why? He said, because the time will come when men and women will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And it's especially hard for us to hear when we're certain and we're set in our ways for us to listen to words of correction or reproof. Well, today, we're going to see how Jesus had to correct and reprove the most religious of his generation. Hopefully, we'll be quick to heed his reproof and not be among those who were like the ones he was addressing there. But, we, uh, but remember how John the Baptist prepared the people of God for the coming Messiah. He was baptizing people and he was, quote, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Some responded to his preaching. They confessed their sins, and they were baptized. And then after John was imprisoned, Jesus began to preach. And how was his message summarized by his followers? The very first recorded sermon of Jesus. 
How was it summarized? It was simply this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So when we look at Matthew chapter 11 and 12, it's all about the skepticism, the resistance, the opposition to both John, who was the forerunner, and to Jesus, who was the Messiah. An opposition to their call to repent in order to enter this kingdom of God that they were preaching. And so as we read today from Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, remember that we're in the context of what we've already been studying for the last couple of weeks. As we read in chapter 12, beginning in verse 33, I want you to notice all the times that Jesus speaks of evil and wickedness and condemnation and judgment. But notice also what it takes to be good and to be acquitted of any guilt. Jesus here is addressing the Pharisees who asserted that Jesus's power was of the devil. And you heard Bruno preach on that last Sunday, if you were here. Uh, thank you to Bruno, if you are here, for being faithful to preach the Word of God last Sunday. In verse 33 of Matthew chapter 12, remember the context of what you've been reading and listening to the last few weeks. Jesus continues to instruct the Pharisees, saying to them, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So Jesus was here lecturing the religious elite, the Pharisees, who knew the law and were passionate and religious about it. He was saying that the words of a man will reveal the condition of his heart. And what were the words he was addressing? The fact that the Pharisees had accused Jesus of having healed by the power of demons instead of by the power of God. And a man's speech is the overflow of his heart, he said. So to make his speech good, his heart must first be transformed, just like the tree and not the fruit must be treated to produce good fruit. And Jesus used the law from nature here to expose the hearts of the Pharisees who had rejected him and his forerunner, John. The Pharisees' words about Jesus' identity revealed that their hearts, in fact, were evil. And Jesus had already condemned their confession as an unforgivable sin. Now he was condemning their evil hearts as the source of their evil confession. And he condemned the Pharisees as a brood of vipers. What is a brood? A brood is the offspring of certain animals. Vipers, as many of you know, are poisonous snakes. Their venom is capable of destroying their victims. So they were the epitome of evil. So the Pharisees, he called them a brood of vipers whose hearts were yet evil. It's hard to understand how a group of people who were so devoutly pious, extremely religious, could be compared to the epitome of evil. But remember, it was John the Baptist also who called the Pharisees and the Sadducees a brood of vipers because they came to where he was baptizing, but they had no fruit that would uh, testify in keeping with repentance. So just because you are religious, it does not mean you have repented of evil. And just because you are devout, it doesn't mean you are devoted to the right one. And just because you are pious, it doesn't mean that you have a pure heart. 
And had the Pharisees not been so set in their own ways, they would have been able to accept the miracles of Jesus as evidence of his identity and his power over Satan as the kingdom of God was coming near to them. Just remember in your own heart how difficult it is to accept someone else telling you that you've been wrong this whole time. And because words will reveal the heart, Jesus says the words of a man will be the basis for either his acquittal or his condemnation. Every one of us will have to give an account of the words that we speak, specifically of what we say about Jesus Christ. Whoever acknowledges me before men, Jesus said, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. So based on one's confession of who Jesus is, every one of us will either be acquitted or condemned in the day of judgment. And that's because as Jesus is saying here that our confession reveals whether or not our hearts have been transformed from evil to good. What do your words reveal about the condition of your heart? Have you confessed with your mouth that you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God? If so, realize that you are among but a few in the world where so many have not been introduced to him or have already rejected him. I'm going to assume as well that most of you are here today because you have already repented of your sins. And you're here worshiping at FIBC because you have believed and confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's why you sing the songs that we sing, because you acknowledged your past sins and you have received your forgiveness. But there is still a possibility that there are some among us here today that still think that if you're religious or devout or pious, that that's what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven to be good. And that if you have, want to be assured to, to be in heaven, then you ha, uh, that you have to do all of those things in order to be right with God. Remember that Jesus called even the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Their words against the Son of God revealed that they were unrepentant and that their hearts were still evil. And by their very words, Jesus said they would be condemned. They were still a bad tree and therefore unable to produce good fruit. And the fact is that many today who have even heard of Jesus will still maintain that his deity was a fabrication, a fabrication by, by uh, misguided followers, or that his words and his works were not accurately recorded by them, or that his teaching may be worth considering, but his own claims that he was sent from the Father or that he was one with the Father, they should be dismissed. Some will even say he wasn't even a historical figure, or they'll maybe admit, admit that he's historical, and that his teaching may be useful, but he has no say over my life. Well, Jesus makes it clear that we will either be acquitted of our guilt or we will, by our confession, be condemned. We will have to give an account of our words and based on those words, especially whether we confess Jesus as Christ, as the Lord God, the Son of God, we will either be acquitted or condemned. The Bible is clear that all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. So all of us deserve condemnation. Why? Because the law requires all of us to be 100% righteous. And in fact, none of us are. All of us have failed to some degree, some of us a lesser degree, others you know who you are to a greater degree. But the good news is that there is a righteousness that has come from God and it comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
That righteousness has been revealed by God and His Son, Jesus. And it is with our hearts that we believe and with our mouth that we confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior who took away our sins. So if you confess Him as your Savior, praise God. It means you believe in your heart and thereby you will be acquitted of your sins. But the fact is before anyone will believe or confess, their heart must first repent of their sins. And what does it mean to repent? Well, simply it means to turn away from your past. A, admit to God that you've sinned. And here's the hard part, because you will have to admit that you've been wrong. You'll have to set aside your pride, especially if you were so certain that what you were doing was actually okay. B, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son who died on the cross to pay for your sins. And C, you have to commit yourself to Jesus as your new Master and Lord. And the fruit of that repentance is this confession of our sin and the confession of Jesus and his sacrifice. Scriptures are clear. It says, watch out for false prophets. By their fruit you will recognize them. What is it that false prophets won't admit? In 1 John chapter 4, it says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God, that every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So those of us who confess Jesus as the Son of God and Savior, the fruit, we give evidence that our heart, the tree, has been transformed by God's Spirit. But if you're here and you have not repented of your sins and you're saying, I'm not ready to do so, what does it take to convince those who have rejected Jesus as the Christ? What does it take to convince them You know, some people say, well, all I need is a sign. If he would just write it across the skies for me. Or they say, if I had enough evidence for the claims of the Bible, then I would believe it. But even in the very presence of Jesus, as he was there, as he performed the signs, there were those that still adamantly rejected him. And notice what Jesus says when they ask for a sign. In verse 38, of Matthew chapter 12. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except a sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the teaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that man is worse than the first. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. So friends, not only do our hearts need to be transformed from evil to good, as Jesus was telling the Pharisees, but he's also saying that condemnation awaits those who still ask for more miraculous signs when they're refusing to believe the signs that have already been given. 
He was lecturing the Pharisees about their request. They asked Jesus, just show us a miraculous sign as though that if you were to do this, then we would believe. But they had already recently witnessed him healing a man with a withered hand. They looked right past that healing at the the possibility that Jesus had broken a Sabbath law. They had also just seen a man having a demon cast out of him, someone who was blind and mute. But they concluded that it must have been the power of Beelzebub. They had heard John the Baptist pointing the way to Jesus the Messiah. They had listened to Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. And yet, here they're still asking for a sign, as though, just show us this one, then we'll believe. But Jesus condemned their request. He said that only a wicked and an adulterous generation asks for a sign. Wicked, why? Because their hearts were still evil. Adulterous, because they were still breaking the covenant with their idolatry. They would only receive what Jesus called the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? Well, Jonah, as you remember in the Old Testament, was in the belly of a huge fish for three days and three nights. And his escape made him a believable prophet. The Son of Man, too, would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, and his resurrection from the dead would make him a believable prophet. Now, people oftentimes fail to see that Jesus' expression here of three days and three nights was a Semitic idiom, something that they would use to indicate any portion of three days. Some have tried to adjust our traditional calendars of celebrating Easter. Well, if it was three days and three nights, then how could Jesus have been crucified on Friday and then we, re- we celebrate the resurrection on Sunday? But we use many idioms in English, don't we? With very imprecise numbers. For example, if someone is drunk, what do we say? He's had one too many. Does someone go around and say, wait a minute, that's more than one too many he's had. He's had three or four in like a whole lifetime. No. Or we say, I'm going to take 40 winks. What does that mean? Some of you Brits, I guess, 40 winks means a nap. Do you take actually 40 winks? No. Or those of you who are in education, what are the three R's of education? Hmm? Reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? How many of those start with R? One of them unless you spell writing with an R and not a WR, and arithmetic with just starting with an R. Three days and three nights is a Semitic idiom for any portion of three days and three nights. And just as Jesus was in the earth for three days and three nights and would be resurrected to prove that he was a credible prophet, that was the sign that they would receive. And that's why Jesus says that the people of Nineveh who did repent when someone like Jonah came around they will be able to stand in judgment of this generation because someone far greater than Jonah was there, and yet they didn't believe him. And the queen of the south, queen of Sheba, that was when she sought the wisdom from Solomon. She came from afar, and she said when she had seen all that Solomon, all of his wisdom and his wealth, she said, praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. So she was willing to acknowledge Jehovah God by what she had seen in Solomon. And now someone far greater than Solomon was there. And yet the Pharisees were unwilling to accept the signs that they had seen. And then Jesus used this very cryptic 
example from the spiritual realm, a spiritual reality to warn us against trying to remain neutral or undecided about Jesus. Remember, he'd already said that he who is not with me is against me. So there's no neutral position regarding your confession of Jesus. Either he is the Christ or he isn't. You can't say, I'm still thinking about it. He warned that the condition of an exorcised man would be worse after a demon had returned than before he was exorcised, revealing here that an unclean spirit looks for a person to possess and to embody. So if he's been cast out, he looks for other places to go. And he revealed that this unclean spirit could choose to return to the person that he'd been cast out of. And it's possible to bring seven other more evil spirits. And then the condition of the man would be worse after the exorcism than when he began. Does it mean that it happens to everyone that has a demon cast out? Well, D.A. Carson, the um, commentator I was reading about this, says it is better to take the language of the text as a Semitic paratactic conditional protestus to verse 45. You all understood that? Let me repeat it just in case you missed that. It is better to take the language of the text as a Semitic paratactic conditional protestus to verse 45. You get it, right? I'll explain. In other words, it's more like an if-then statement. It's a conditional statement, an if-then scenario rather than a universal fact, that if upon his return the demon would find that his former home is still empty, then he could take seven other demons and make it worse for that person. Because if it meant that any person being exercised would inevitably be repossessed by seven more, then think about the huge disfavor Jesus was doing to most people that he was exercising, right? That wouldn't make sense. Why would he deliver people from their demonic influence only for them to once again be possessed by seven more? No, it's a possibility. It could happen, but he's saying you can't remain neutral about him. So when our hearts are transformed, we shouldn't need any miraculous signs anymore. This request for a miraculous sign was reflecting a heart that was yet evil. And we too are part of a wicked and adulterous generation if we ask for more signs than what we've already been given. There was an atheist or agnostic named Robert Ingersoll. He went around to, to discredit the scriptures discredit the deity of Christ, even though his father was a pastor. Back in the 1800s, after delivering one of his addresses, he pulled his watch from his pocket. Yes, it's that far back when you pull a watch out of your pocket. According to the Bible, he said, God has struck men to death for blasphemy. I will blaspheme him and give him five minutes to strike me dead and damn my soul. Well, there was a period of perfect silence after he said that and a minute went by. Then two minutes went by as people began to get nervous. Then three minutes passed and a woman fainted. Four minutes passed as Ingersoll curled his lips and at five minutes he snapped shut his watch, put it in his pocket and said, you see, there is no God or he would have taken me at my word. When that story was later told to Joseph Parker, he said, and did that American gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of God in just five minutes? <laughs> there are people who will continuously and insistently claim there is no God. 
there was the Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin who went up into space and he's famously quoted as saying, I see no God here. Apparently at a press conference, someone said, yes, but if he'd opened the window, he would have seen God. <laughs> as you ask for signs, remember that God is not in the entertainment business. And the sign that Jesus was raised from the dead bodily should provide for us sufficient evidence that validate his claims as the Son of God who came to show us the Father and the way to the Father. Will that be sufficient for this, our generation today? Let me remind you that the tomb was empty. The record shows that the disciples were surprised by the fact, so they would not have stolen the body expecting that it was empty. And the Romans and Jews could not have stolen the body because they were trying to cover up the fact that the body was missing. Some have said the women perhaps went to the wrong tomb. Well, they couldn't have gone to the wrong tomb because they were with Joseph of Arimathea when he laid the body in the tomb. Jesus was most certainly dead after what he had been through and after what the Roman soldier had done to make certain with his sword that he was dead. And yet, Jesus appeared to so many disciples and other witnesses after he had risen from the grave, and their lives were so transformed by it that they were willing to die for their claim that he had risen indeed. Now, I will address those a little bit more in detail, likely on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter, but if one doesn't accept his resurrection from the dead, then no other sign will change your mind. And in the day of judgment, even the Ninevites and the Queen of the South will also stand and condemn our generation for unbelief. We had one greater than Jonah. Did we repent? We have one wiser than Solomon. Did we seek his wisdom? No, we should not need any other miraculous sign to believe that Jesus is the Christ because we have the testimony of the Scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit, preserved through the centuries, and translated into our native languages. We have also the testimony of changed lives, people like you and me, examples who've gone before us with the evidence of a transformation from being evil in our hearts to then being good. And we have the testimony of history and archaeology. And as they continue to look into history and archaeology, they're unearthing more and more things to support the scriptures. And those who still wait for a miraculous sign, Jesus says, will be judged and will be condemned. So if we have sinned against God and we are wrong, then we need to repent. Too often we fail to realize the gravity of our own sin. Either we dismiss it as something that's not so bad, we think of our behavior, we couldn't be evil or wicked. We don't like the thought of God judging justly unless of course it's the evil that other people do. We prefer to think that God will just overlook our sins and our wrong deeds. But God sees the sins all of them, and he sees them so seriously that it required the eternal Son of God for him to suffer and die on a cross to atone for our sins. Sometimes we don't like our sins just because we don't like the consequences of our sins. But let's remember, it isn't just the regret over the consequences we have to endure. We have to recognize it's an, it's an offense. It's an affront against God, and God is holy and righteous. And any sin will separate us from God. And if we aren't atoned for, then that separation will be forever. 
So if you have not yet repented and confessed Jesus as your Savior, well, today could be your day. Don't wait another moment. If you're not for Jesus, you're against him. But if you have repented, praise God, and if you've confessed Jesus as your Savior, praise God that you will also be acquitted of your guilt on that day of judgment. Remember that eternal life begins the day that we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That death itself is just a stepping stone into eternity. But we have eternal life today. We enjoy the abundant life today when we follow him every day. Because we are no longer slaves to sin. No, we can offer the members of our body to righteousness instead. The Spirit of God indwells us, and yet perhaps for in fact, for many of us, the flesh still has its demands, still has its desires, and old habits are sometimes hard to break. But once our hearts are changed, then we are capable of doing good because the tree has been made good, therefore the fruit will be good. And so just remember, as a Christian, you have already turned away from your past. That's what repentance is. I love it when I was in Moldova and listening to testimonies. Very often people wouldn't talk about the day I received Jesus. They would say the day I repented. I think it's also common among Romanians. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But when you tell your testimony, you refer to it as the day you repented. I like that. Because that really reminds us that there was a past life I had. The day I repented and then received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So let us who have repented and received Christ as Savior be sensitive to any other sinful attitudes or words that may lead to actions that we may need to correct or need a friend to tell us that we were wrong about. Let's be quick to admit such wrong and let's desire that intimacy with God that still gets affected when our sin remains unconfessed. We don't lose our salvation. We lose the intimacy with our Lord and Savior. And we need to have that repentance plan for those sins that beset us habitually. A repentance plan that could include some other way to avoid the temptation or some accountability that you may have with a Christian partner or even a set of steps that you lay out that if you do sin again in this particular area, that you'll make sure alongside someone else that it will not happen again. So friends, as I close today, remember what Jesus was saying here, that every heart has to be transformed from evil to good. And because condemnation awaits those who will ask for more miraculous signs, then repent today if you haven't already done so. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we bow before you, we humbly acknowledge that you are God and we are not. You are the creator and we are the created. You are the Lord and Savior and Master, and we are your servants, here to bring glory to you, to speak of your truth, to enjoy your presence, and to love you. We thank you that you went to great lengths to restore that relationship that was broken by our sin. Thank you that for many of us, you revealed our sinfulness to us so long ago, and we were convicted back then and that we've received Jesus Christ and been assured of our salvation ever since. But Lord, maybe there's some here today that for the first time, they realize that even though they've been religious or pious or devout, they've understood it all wrong. Lord, we pray that you would open up their hearts 
to be able to see that Jesus Christ has died for their sins. We pray that they'd be willing to admit their own sinfulness and confess that to you. And we pray, Lord, that they would surrender themselves to you and receive this gift of eternal life that you offer. Lord, we know that rejecting you today could mean that we would be separated from you forever. And Lord, we just don't want that for anyone here today. We pray that all who are here, that they would know Jesus as their Lord and Savior so that they could live with you eternally. We pray this in his name. Amen. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.